On March 24, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance hosted a conversation with Omar Abdulaziz Halaj, co-coordinator of the Syria Project at the Common Space Initiative in Beirut. The event, titled Challenges to the Syria Peace Talks in Geneva, How Local Governance and the War Economy Shaped the Prospects for International Diplomacy, focused on mechanisms to assist the political process in Syria by highlighting different scenarios for a gradual re-aggregation of the country. The conversation was moderated by Holder Albrecht, Middle East Initiative Associate at Harvard Kennedy School and Professor of Political Science at American University in Cairo. For more information about the Ash Center, visit ash.harvard.edu. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to the Ash Center this afternoon. I'm Holger Albrecht. I'm a an, an associate research fellow at the Middle East Initiative. And it is a real pleasure for me to introduce to you our guest speaker of today, uh, Omar Abdelaziz Halaj. Uh, Mr. Halaj uh, is coming more or less directly from Geneva to talk about the peace talks there. It's very exciting. Uh, I work on Syria a little bit, and it's really uh, also personally exciting for me to have you here today. Um, his talk uh, is on challenges to the Syria peace talks in Geneva, how local governance and the war economy shape prospects for international diplomacy. Um, um, Mr. Halaj is coordinator um, of the Syria project uh, at, Common at the Common Space Initiative in Beirut, so I'm very excited in particular to have someone here today who does not only who is not only invo involved in the peace talks to solve the conflict, but he does something on the ground. Uh, he's been working to try solve the conflict that's, that has been going on for five years. Um, Mr. Halaj has a background as a consultant in urban planning, local government and development. He's the former CEO of the Syria Trust for uh, Development. Um, he served on the board of several NGOs and commissions. He received, received the Aga Khan Award uh, for Architecture. I think you're an architecture by training with an MA from uh, the University of Texas. And I just learned also that he was the team leader of the uh, Shibam Urban Development Project in Yemen. Uh, which hits a uh, soft spot for me because I spent a lot of time in Yemen, so we just had a chance to talk a little bit about this. Um, so his work really is at the intersection of uh, urban planning, local development, politics, economics. I find this very exciting because, again, he's involved also on work on the ground. He s certainly has very interesting insights into the peace talks, but he can also tell us something, hopefully, about what you do actually in Beirut to help solve the conflict in Syria. And um, uh, I want to also thank uh, Medina, uh, the organization that brought him out here. Uh, it's the Harvard Graduate School of Design uh, and the Arab Student, uh, Arab Student Association. I think you have a I know you have a very busy schedule for conference moving on to New York, and he just arrived here last night. Very excited to have you here. And what we're going to do is uh, you will talk for like 20, 25 minutes, and we should have ample time for, uh, the, uh, for discussions, Q&A. Very happy to have a large crowd here today, and there should be enough time. I'll moderate the uh, discussion, and I would like uh, uh, you to introduce yourself uh, whenever you have questions or comments. Thank you for coming. Thank you. So, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming to the uh, presentation. I'm sorry I'm a bit uh, jet-lagged, so bear with me until I uh, get my energy together. Um, 
I'm going to cover uh, a few themes today just to sort of uh, entice us to open the discussion. I think it would be more fruitful eventually that we have a two-way conversation. Uh, uh, I think I would benefit as well also from your wisdom and uh, uh, inquisitive uh, questions. Um, basically, what I'm going to highlight is um, where we are right now in the political process and uh, the challenges that are uh, being posed uh, through the current framework under which this uh, uh, political process is taking place, particularly that on the ground, the conditions and realities resemble very little um, the actual uh, sort of frameworks being discussed in uh, Geneva. So we have, in a sense, uh, a general uh, agreement that was established sometime uh, not too long ago in the past uh, between Russia and uh, the United States uh, on managing uh, sort of uh, the, the process. And uh, in a sense, this uh, transition is being sort of viewed uh, by different uh, stakeholders and uh, quite naturally uh, they're afraid of it. They're saying that it is being imposed on them from the top rather than uh, coming out of their own free will. There's quite a bit of resistance among all of the stakeholders um, uh, because they're not understanding what is the nature of the Russian-American uh, agreement. And to a certain extent, uh, we're seeing that uh, people are just struggling to uh, sort of uh, reposition themselves very quickly with the changing uh, political realities on the ground. So uh, let me retract a little bit. And uh, let's go back to 2012 when the first Geneva uh, uh, discussion took place uh, without any Syrians being on the table back then. Uh, and sort of it was again a, a Russian-American uh, framework that was established. The Geneva communique that uh, was uh, published in 2012 um, sort of envisioned some sort of a power sharing deal. Uh, but it was never quite understood how to move about and how to implement such a deal. And in a sense, the different positions that were taken by the regional uh, players in the game, given that neither the United States nor Russia had quite a, an appetite back then to be uh, more directly involved in the Syrian uh, crisis, uh, the crisis was left to fester for three and a half years almost um, until the Russians and the Americans decided to take things into their own hands. Um, that doesn't mean that the regional players are not uh, effective on the ground. Uh, doesn't mean that the regional players cannot exercise some will in the process, but more or less we have um, now a very strong directive uh, on how things are moving. Now, the ISS... Uh, um, the uh, ISSG uh, sort of agreement that was conducted in Vienna, which was then codified in uh, two Security Council resolutions, uh, the 2253 and the 2254, are uh, in essence um, uh, an attempt at de-aggregating uh, or desegregating, let's say, the Geneva communique into two parts. If you all remember, uh, when the Syrians eventually met in Geneva in 2014, there was the big question about which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, do we fight terrorism first or do we establish the transition uh, first? So uh, already in the Vienna uh, agreements, uh, this was kind of resolved into two frameworks. One framework was sort of for fighting terrorism, which was set in a separate uh, Security Council resolution. That's 2253. 
that hardly anybody talks about, uh, except President Assad himself, uh, probably, um, because he has always insisted that fighting terrorism is a, is a priority. But then everybody is talking about 2254, which is the sort of general framework for a political transition. Uh, 2254, uh, in many ways, um, still envisions two parties that are sitting at the table. Uh, quite clearly, there's some sort of a government delegation. And also, on the other hand, there's some opposition delegation. Now, the government more or less has the power to assert its own delegation. Um, whether that is a legitimate delegation or not is of no consequences to the government, because in many ways, um, uh, the government uh, politically is still acting in a unified manner. We will see in a bit later that actually on the ground, they're no longer operating as a single unit. Uh, but actually, on the, at least on the level of uh, 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 international negotiation platforms, they still have the ability to assemble uh, one delegation. The opposition, on the other hand, um, is not so lucky uh, in that uh, they are comprised of different factions, different groups, different interests. And most importantly, they are supported by different regional actors and international actors. So to a certain extent, assembling them under one uh, delegation is uh, proving to be a rather difficult task. To that extent, it was important to have um, Saudi Arabia involved in the process uh, to help sort out uh, some of the oppositions into a single framework. And um, um, the Riyadh delegation was uh, established. However, the Riyadh delegation um, is still lacking um, quite a bit of representation. The Kurds are not uh, fully uh, represented in that uh, uh, group, uh, albeit um, one faction of the Kurdish uh, uh, political parties is there, but the biggest uh, faction, which is the PYD, is not included. Uh, many of the, um, uh, let's say, independent opposition groups that Moscow deems uh, relevant are not included in it. And a lot of the, what they call loyalist opposition parties, which is the sort of group of uh, political parties that are registered in Damascus and act as a legal uh, opposition inside Damascus, are not represented in it. Uh, also, um, and very importantly, the uh, opposition delegation uh, had a bit of a question of whether they're going to include the uh, armed groups in it or not. And that hasn't been resolved quite satisfactorily yet, because only some of the armed groups are involved and not all of them. Nonetheless, um, the point at this moment is that there is a momentum towards uh, uh, moving things forward. And the momentum is for. Uh, some sort of a two-sided table. On the one side, there's a regime uh, delegation, and on the other side, there's uh, an opposition delegation. Everybody else had to be somehow um, incorporated indirectly. So there were uh, secret discussions with the PYD that took place in Lausanne, because the Turks uh, threatened very uh, uh, clearly that if the PYD is involved in the process, that they would actually undermine it. Um, then there were consultative bodies that were created. Um, uh, some of them Dimistura himself created. For instance, he created the Women's Advisory Board, which is uh, a special body that uh, 
brings in women from uh, the different political uh, spectrum, uh, sides of the political spectrum. Uh, he also created some sort of a table for civil society or a forum for civil society uh, to be involved in the process. But most importantly, uh, Russia, Iran, and others were able to bring in their own advisors, Syrian advisors, to the process. And that way, sort of, at the end of the day, you had more or less everybody consulted. But um, is it enough? Is it sufficient? Uh, is it capable of resolving the conflict? That remains uh, the big question. Uh, generally, if we analyze 2254, um, there's actually four pillars uh, that uh, need to be sort of looked at. Uh, 2254 sets up a framework. Uh, it's not uh, necessarily exclusive in the sense that it's not one after the other. It's four par parallel tracks that would have to move more or less simultaneously. On the one hand, there was the whole question of confidence building measures. And um, you know, this is one pillar that uh, is still very ill-defined uh, in the 2254. It was left to the discretion of the Mistura and the Syrian delegations to decide what they wanted to do there. There was the whole ceasefire uh, pillar. And in a sense, this was temporarily resolved by the US and Russia creating uh, what they call the cessation of hostility. So it's one way to get around the issue of ceasefires, because establishing ceasefires, as we all know, on the ground is a very difficult task. So what was created was the first step, which is, uh, uh, again, a critical mass of calming down, which was impossible before, but at least now we have that on the table. Um, then there was the whole issue of the transitional arrangements, uh, what they call the steps towards a transitional process. Uh, and quite clearly, uh, the 2254 designates something, uh, again, in imitation of Geneva, uh, that talks about a transitional governing body, whatever that means, because in the international diplomacy and in governance literature, there's no definition of something like that. So um, most importantly, there was the sort of understanding that it will be a Syrian-led a uh, Syrian-owned uh, process, and it's done by mutual consent. Mutual consent basically is referring us to a power-sharing deal. Uh, but until now, the opposition still sees the, the, the process as you know, a process of Assad relinquishing. And the regime quite clearly sees this process as you know, a, a way of reintegrating the opposition into the government in some sort of a national unity government. So, we're very far apart on this uh, issue here. And finally, there's the whole question of the Constitution, which somehow miraculously have to be uh, developed. A roadmap has to be developed within six months for writing a new constitution. And uh, that's another can of worms, because um, there's the whole question of the executive powers of the president uh, involved in it. And uh, at the moment, I don't think this is the, the time the regime will be willing to discuss this. On the other hand, there will be the whole issue of religious um, uh, jurisprudential uh, concerns, uh, what are the sources of uh, legislation in the future, which I think a lot of the opposition people are not willing to uh, give up on, particularly that the Muslim Brotherhood are, are trying to push for uh, more role for religion in governance. Now, in principle, we are just at the beginning touching the basis of these things, and we have 
basically the government and the loyalist forces have their own vision and interest in, in the process. And we have the opposition delegation and the various other delegations on the opposition side. They have their own interests. So the process is going to be literally pulled apart. Each side is going to uh, pull things to their part. The regime is more happy if things just end up here. Um, the regime's theory of change has always been sort of like, we will work out local ceasefires, and we will negotiate a few things on the ground to make people a little bit more confident with the process. And we will reintegrate people into um, what they call the, the arms of the nation. Uh, the opposition, on the other hand, wants to see things more on this side. They want to see transitional arrangements. They want to see a new constitution. And in a sense, they see the, this discourse uh, as undermining uh, the process. They're afraid so much because the previous ceasefires that were uh, done uh, were very much sort of undermining uh, their legitimacy on the ground. They see that the regime has uh, uh, not used ceasefire in a fair manner. What ha the regime has done was more like uh, besieging areas, uh, starving them, and then forcing them into surrender. So the term ceasefire, as far as the opposition is concerned, is a, is a term loaded uh, with political significance. Uh, perhaps uh, people on the outside, when they hear ceasefire, they hear good things. Uh, for a lot of the local actors, ceasefire is actually a term that is uh, uh, loaded with negative meanings. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, each one of those tracks will eventually have a life of its own. So eventually, the uh, confidence building measures will relate to improving conditions on the ground, recovery, uh, uh, regaining urban functionality for the different cities, uh, uh, more or less creating jobs, uh, eventually uh, releasing uh, political prisoners, reintegrating um, uh, armed groups into uh, civilian life. Uh, so DDR, the regime is going to insist more on the language of DDR. The opposition, on the other hand, is going to insist more on the language of SSR, the security sector reform. And uh, in a sense, uh, uh, each one of those tracks will eventually have its own um, uh, negotiation field that's going to drag on for, for years. So 2254 is a very unrealistic uh, ordinance in that uh, 18 months is just an absolutely non-feasible framework for uh, a political transition. Nonetheless, I think the timing was set in such a way as to ensure everybody that the process is serious. So I think we need to sort of look um, a bit more carefully in the language of 2254 because the 18-month period set in it is for holding elections pursuant a new constitution. And the constitution would have to have a roadmap developed within six months, but the 2254 does not speak about how long does the constitution writing process take place. So in a sense, um, 2254 has room for maneuver uh, with regards to time. We should not be stuck on the 18-month uh, parameters. And understand that each one of those things is going to involve a long and painful uh, negotiation track on its own right. To that extent, the Mistura has engaged four very capable uh, uh, people to lead the process. Mr. Jan uh, Egeland, who will be mainly leading on issues of humanitarian 
uh, and protection. Uh, Mr. Volker Perthes, who will be leading on the issue of uh, uh, ceasefires and uh, 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 sort of security sector reforms in the future. Uh, Ms. Birgitta Alani, who will be leading on issues related to governance. And Mr. Nicola Michel, who will be leading primarily on uh, the issue of uh, constitution building. So um, the notion of creating the long-term uh, sort of working groups is still alive, even though formally uh, it's uh, set aside for the time being. Uh, so this is pretty much sort of when we talk about the, conf uh, the conflict and the toolkit needed to resolve the conflict, we need to understand that there is not a conflict that can be resolved from the top alone. That each conflict at the end of the day requires a series of top-down processes, but also a series of bottom-up processes. So um, there's one very important factor that nobody's working on right now, and that is you need a, to build a higher moral ground for peace. Uh, at the moment, the two delegations going to Geneva are facing tremendous peer pressure from their constituencies not to go, not to relinquish any concessions. So the, the, the general discourse on the ground uh, among the opposition and among the loyalists is not conducive for their delegations to actually engage in peace building. And um, there's tremendous pressure. You would not believe the peer pressure that is being exercised from the bottom up. There's the whole issue of local ceasefires. Again, even if we have a general ceasefire, um, the question of local ceasefire is very important because whatever you broker on a national level, we have to understand that there's actually uh, quite a bit of local resistance. Uh, the opposition is comprised of dozens and dozens of big um, sort of groupings that are each consistent of dozens and dozens of small armed groups. So in total, there's some several thousand, uh, uh, two to three thousand uh, actors on the opposition side, and several hundred actors on the regime side, because we have to consider all of the branches of security and armed uh, uh, sort of uh, brigades of the army. But also, we have to consider all of the local militias that the regime has set up uh, or sort of outsourced local security issues in the different loyalist zones, too. Um, there's the whole issue of how do you create from local ceasefires uh, larger frameworks for ceasefires. Uh, it's not enough to do one ceasefire here and one ceasefire there. Eventually, you're going to need uh, some infrastructure for monitoring peace building. And that means there's going to be regional committees, regional commands, monitors, um, international monitors, perhaps. So there's a whole layer that is so far not being discussed, uh, at least in public. It's being discussed a little bit in private between the Americans and the Russians, uh, but not in public. So eventually, we also have to figure out that once you set up uh, some sort of a stabilizing peace deal on the ground, you're going to need to create immediately some frameworks to uh, contain the, uh, uh, the warriors, the disbanded armed groups on both sides, the disbanded militias. Uh, this is a, a major task we all know from different conflicts that once the peace sets in, 
um, funding for the militia sort of dies down and then they turn into another layer of violence. Uh, changing from politically motivated or creed motivated violence to uh, greed motivated violence happens at that moment of signing the peace deals. And it doesn't reduce violence, it actually just transforms violence. So it's very important that you create some immediate relief work that will sort of uh, bring people back to their jobs, back to their uh, 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 livelihoods, and sort of engages fighters very quickly. Uh, and in many cases, you're going to have to depend on creating local governance structures. Uh, at the moment, uh, we will talk about that a, a little bit, but uh, um, we need to understand that there's five different geographies already operating in Syria on a local government level. There's the regime's local governance structures, the opposition's local governance structures, uh, the ISIS local governance structures, the Kurdish local governance structures, and uh, we have also the sort of uh, uh, Nusra uh, uh, geography that is also uh, on the books there. So uh, quite literally, we have um, uh, already uh, different structures that have to be somehow brought together. Uh, and that's not an easy task. And then we have to look at how we can create some sort of a meaningful representation for the opposition and for the regime uh, areas. Uh, because in many ways, if we want to have any real change on the regime side, we also need to empower local representation to emerge from regime areas and not only from opposition areas. If we keep the regime in charge of representing its own communities, then the regime is always going to usurp uh, that power. So local governance is going to be very important because through local governance, you're going to create representation for communities on both sides, on all sides, and not just um, sort of like the opposition needs to have its representation. The regime also needs to have better representation. And then eventually we're going to go into uh, the transitional processes which would uh, require us to go into some sort of a national dialogue process. To produce a new constitution, we need uh, uh, some effort eventually for a national dialogue that will produce a new constitution. New political parties would eventually come about to actually get, engage in new elections and a new process. And we all know that the process does not end with uh, the election of a first government that very often uh, these conflicts have uh, at least a generation of political uh, transitions uh, before they settle into uh, some sort of a meaningful place. So those were the challenges on the top for whoever is going to manage that process. What is the situation on the ground? Very often we see maps like this for Syria. Uh, this is actually one of the more nuanced ones because very often we see territorial maps. I'm going to suggest that actually the situation on the ground is not very territorial. It actually resembles more heat, like heat maps. Because at any given time, uh, ISIS can shift forces from here to there. They cannot keep all of this area dark black at the same time. Likewise, the regime cannot keep all of its areas dark red at all times. The opposition cannot keep their areas dark green at all times. So, uh, very often we see that uh, there's a better way of understanding the geography of the conflict by looking at where the power centers are. If we look at the cities and the towns where actually, uh, first of all, the tangible governance structures exist and where population and economic centers uh, are present, and we see that it's a completely different map. 
Uh, ISIS, for instance, uh, uses a system where by they keep sort of regional units, very flexible regional units that can move very quickly uh, based on the demands from local commanders. Uh, but more importantly, they have also a set of uh, intelligence networks that works against their own intelligence, uh, against their local commanders. So more or less, they have exactly the same bassist structure uh, for managing their territory as the Ba'ath Party did uh, uh, in Syria and in Iraq uh, before them. It actually uses sort of like uh, symbolic uh, governance frameworks on the front and uh, soft uh, intelligence structures on the back. Uh, and in a sense, they have this sort of uh, very fluid uh, units that can move from uh, the big towns to the countryside at a moment's notice. Uh, 200 cars, 100 cars, whatever is necessary will be moved um, with their uh, people to sort of quell any resistance. Um, likewise, the regime sort of uses also uh, the big towns and as centers for control. And uh, more or less, the Kurdish uh, model is not very different uh, either. Uh, even though it has the semblance of being a bit more democratic on the front, but at the end of the day, it's the PYD who's controlling things uh, from behind. What does the, a model like this tell us? Let's look at it a little bit more carefully. Syria. Uh, was in 2010 a, town, a city, uh, sorry, a state where um, about 55% of the population was urban. Today, Syria is about 75 to 80% urban. There was a major transformation that usually takes nations uh, about uh, 50 years to make. Uh, uh, Syria did that transformation in five years. The majority of the IDPs, uh, the internally displaced people, are living in urban areas. The urban areas have become the center of policy, of stability, of uh, uh, populations. And in many ways, if we're going to talk about um, creating some sort of a framework to, uh, for peace building, we're going to need to look at the cities as, uh, uh, as places of stability. Now, stabilization has become the key word, particularly after the London conference, because everybody is worried that ISIS is gaining control because particularly of the lack of governance in various parts of the country. So uh, everybody now in the donor community is talking stabilization. And everybody is looking for frameworks for stabilization. Um, it had been tried before. The EU has been funding extensively. The US has been funding extensively stabilization programs in opposition areas. What were the results? Well, part of the problem was they each sort of came to a particular town and asked their people on the ground, so what do you need uh, in, in your area? And the people would say, well, we need a well because we have no water. So very well, how much does it take to drill a well in your area? About a million Syrian pounds, very well. Here's a million Syrian pounds. Here's a course on local governance. And uh, here's a course on uh, transitional justice and another course on gender-based violence. Uh, whatever is the donor's sort of uh, interest. Not that these are not important issues, but they're not born out of the local community's needs. And at the end of the day, uh, by giving them sufficient funds to solve their problem on their own, they are no longer having to negotiate with their neighbors to solve their problems. So we have in every little town a local army brigade, or whatever that um, military brigade happened to be, 
whose brother happens to be the head of the NGO that is dealing with the Americans or with the French or with the Norwegians or whatever, and the cousin who's the head of the local council, uh, who's more or less sort of, you know, so but the, the donor structures for stabilization have actually fragmented the situation rather than enabled sort of the creation of, uh, of networks of stability. And as a result, every little town now feels that it is independent and does not have to negotiate with the next tour town. In reality, uh, by digging wells everywhere, uh, we're depleting the water table. Uh, so within two or three years, nobody's going to have water. And uh, in reality, there was a water main that linked all of these towns or villages in, in one go. Uh, but, and it probably needed just simply like maybe uh, two million pounds or three million pounds to fix the pipe that would have, uh, uh, or the pump that would have sort of fed all of the towns down the line. So rather than creating networks of mutual stability and mutual relations, uh, the donor funds went in and consecrated the fragmentation of the territory on the ground. So a lot of what is being proposed nowadays is to look more on what brings people together rather than uh, sort of fragmenting them. So whatever stabilization funds are being designed right now have to be uh, reconfigured in the future. Ceasefires, uh, again, like I said, have gained a very bad reputation because primarily they were used by the regime, or so we are told. This is a map from 2014, uh, beginning of 2014 until the day Mr. de Mistura decided to announce the freeze in Aleppo. There was 46 ceasefires conducted in Syria that, uh, on that year alone. Uh, the previous two years uh, involved some 76 local ceasefires. Not all of them are between regime and opposition. A lot of them are between opposition and opposition. A lot of them are between opposition and ISIS. A lot of them are between Nusra and opposition. So by giving a very bad reputation to something called ceasefire, we have undermined one of the most important tools that they use in peace building. Uh, and in a sense, uh, the donor community, the international community, is just absolutely not wanting to hear about local ceasefires because that's the regime tool, right? Well, wrong, because in many ways, that is what was negotiated very often on the ground independently of the regime. And very often, yes, the regime was involved in the process. Not all of the ceasefires were horrible. Some of them were horrible, some of them were bad, some of them were less bad, none of them were perfect. The question is, what do we learn from them? How can we create better systems? And how can we empower people to negotiate better with the regime in the future? By denying people the right to exercise in ceasefires or engage in ceasefires, we have deprived them of one of the key tools they could have improved their lives considerably. And in a sense, enabled the regime to continue further on in its belligerence. And so the ceasefires will be a very important uh, challenge on the ground. The next challenge on the ground is going to be somehow reconstruction and recovery. Uh, of course, there's now at least four or five big projects that are looking at the volume of reconstruction that's going to take place in Syria. And uh, we look at it sort of like in a package deal. Syria is going to need $100 billion worth of investments uh, to rebuild its uh, damaged infrastructure. Well, we all know that that money is not going to come from anywhere. The biggest donor conference may promise five to six billion dollars uh, over five years, and maybe only one of that uh, uh, one billion will be delivered eventually. So we know that donor money is not uh, ready for that kind of 
deal. So Syria is actually not going to be rebuilt. We have to look at it more in the context of how do we redevelop a country. A country that has now approximately uh, 25 to 30% of its population outside Syria. Despite all of what the UN is saying, the actual figures on the ground the UN is saying that only four and a half million people have left the country. But when we look inside the cities and we uh, do co uh, estimation of populations uh, across uh, the, the whole spectrum of towns inside this country, we arrive at a number that is um, far below that. I mean, basically, a lot more people have left the country. Uh, they're either in neighboring countries, in uh, uh, Europe, in, in other places. So. In a sense, the, the people who have left are the better educated. Uh, there's at least uh, three or four years more education with the people that have left than the people that have stayed. Uh, the people who have stayed have lost approximately now two and a half years worth of education for their kids um, on average uh, across the board in Syria. 50% of the kids are not going to school. So we have a whole generation that is lost in the process, and this is a generation that will be the prime recruitment uh, field of the next generation of ISIS, because ISIS eventually militarily will be defeated. But ideologically, it's going to create the yet another transformation on the ground uh, in the future. More importantly, uh, when we look at how the damage was uh, created in Syria, we're going to see that uh, the areas that received the bigger parts of the fighting, like Dara'a, like Aleppo, like Damascus, uh, rural Damascus, uh, like Deir Zor, if we sort of look at what the government was spending before and the ability of government institutions to spend before, uh, in a place like Aleppo, it's going to require more or less uh, 400% of the government total spending in the governorate of Aleppo to rebuild the housing stock that was damaged. So if the government spent nothing uh, over the next, uh, uh, let's say there was a ceasefire today and they started reconstruction. If the government spent nothing, no salaries, uh, no services, uh, uh, nothing else but building houses, they're going to need four years given 2010 spending levels, which are no longer there. The government has lost about two-thirds of its budget. So where will the reconstruction money come from? It's not going to come. Syria, if we sort of say this is the lowest developed country and that's the highest developed country, was more or less around here before the war. Right now, Syria developmentally has been reduced to this. There's not going to be a reconstruction process in Syria. The reconstruction process is something that the belligerents have been selling to their followers, that you know, if we win, it will be a fraction of a second until it gets built. Well, it's not going to happen. And in many ways, uh, one of the things that we all need to work on is debunking this myth of reconstruction. Because the myth of reconstruction is feeding the war. Eventually, we're going to need a cycle that sort of looks on the local level on how we can sort of generate livelihoods, uh, create local community leaders, uh, stimulate local economies, build local institutions, support peace building processes on the local level. This is a local cycle that would have to be sort of run in conjunction with a national cycle 
that looks at how to distribute national resources, how to build national institutions, and how to create sort of a national framework for peace building. Those two processes have to work hand in hand. We are, uh, Mr. De Mistura is looking um, uh, primarily on the top-down process. Nobody's looking at the bottom-up processes, at least on the international level. So eventually, everybody's talking about a national uh, government. But we're going to need to look more what happens on the local level, how we recreate governance from the bottom up. Because the local economies, the local power, the local armed groups are all local. And they're going to influence a very major uh, uh, pressure on the national process, which at the moment nobody's taking into consideration. So I'll close down just to show some of the work that we are doing, uh, uh, just to sort of give you an idea of what we are doing in the Common Space Initiative. These are samples of the processes that we are involved in. We, have, we support approximately 15 uh, dialogue platforms uh, across both loyalist and opposition. And sometimes when we're lucky, we can jump and cross the divide. But basically what we're doing is we're working with all of the stakeholders to start preparing themselves for changing their mindsets about negotiations and start understanding what kind of a political space needs to be created uh, for the negotiations to take place. So we work with uh, both um, opposition and uh, loyalist uh, groups uh, to sort of prepare them for how do you move about in case there's a negotiation. What can you do on the ground? What can you do on the national level? How can you create better uh, sort of uh, uh, involvement in the political process? It's to demystify the political process. It's basically to uh, show them what to expect if they go into a negotiation process. And most importantly, we are engaging a lot of the women groups in the process as well, because uh, it's very often the women are uh, sort of excluded from the process altogether. So we work quite extensively with women groups uh, as well to sort of encourage them to be engaged uh, in the processes. Some of the more positive things that we need to look at is uh, these, again, uh, are things that came out from the uh, discussions with the various groups. Um, we are now able to understand local stakeholders. This is a map that was done when loyalist and opposition people sat at the same table and did a stakeholder mapping of one of the besieged areas to start understanding each other, to start understanding how they can negotiate ceasefires, to start understanding what are the conditions on the ground. Another thing that is sort of very interesting is sort of some of the mapping that we have been able to do is to look at local resilience structures. This is a map of Aleppo, and every one of those circles represent an internet, a virtual group uh, on the net that sort of helps the people of the neighborhood uh, to find resources, services. Is the uh, road to uh, open this way? Uh, uh, is there shelling on that side of the neighborhood? Uh, has anybody, um, uh, is there a doctor uh, around? So, and if you notice, some of them are very localized, some of them are very big. There's over 300 resilience networks existing for a town like Aleppo. So this is still a community that is looking to survive. And if we look very carefully at the political discourse, yes, indeed, it is very polarized. And the political language is very fragmented. But when it comes to basic survival issues, most Syrians, at the end of the day, find common ground. Uh, 
a lot of what we're hoping as a theory of change eventually is that we are supporting various dialogue platforms and we are supporting peace assets working on the ground, uh, basically individuals or NGOs or other things, to create uh, some sort of a databases, research and mapping that feeds back into the dialogues that are taking place on the ground. And then these dialogue processes eventually themselves move and create further dialogue processes inside Syria or within opposition or within loyalist circles. So eventually the 15 dialogue processes that we have created are now uh, expanding and mushrooming inside the country. Um, uh, next month, uh, a, pro a group that we have worked with um, for the last seven months is now developing on its own four uh, uh, other subgroups. A group that we have worked in Damascus, um, uh, again, created now an event that is recurring in every city uh, inside regime-controlled areas. So eventually, these things uh, grow, and they start spreading a sort of a, a, a new culture, new language, new possibilities, new explorations. The most important thing for us is to convince Syrians that you are living in 2016 and no longer in 2011 your narratives that you have used to justify violence are no longer valid. You have to look for other narratives. I stop here and we take questions and answers. Uh, I've talked probably a bit too much. Thank you very much for these fascinating insights. I admit I could just sit here and listen to you for hours. I learned so much uh, from your report on the current um, events and the negotiations going on. I was tempted to abuse my powers and ask you a couple of questions, but since we have like just about an hour, a little bit more left, I put push this back and maybe we have a chance to, to have a one-on-one after the talk. So I'll take questions. I again ask you to introduce yourself and maybe we take three, four questions, you respond and we go to the next round. Thank you very much. Uh, for being here and for your amazing presentation. My name is Dina Buchbinder. I'm from Mexico. I'm a student here. And I was wondering what's your vision towards including the diaspora in order to to participate in the in the solution of the of, of the, this very complex complex problem. How are you planning to include them or not? When and also offer you services for for children in, in Syria. Uh, I, I run an organization for children to become better citizens through play, so it's at your service. Thank you. Um, my name is Ala Qasim. I'm a Master of Public Policy, uh, first year from Yemen. Uh, my question is, I, I, I hear the, the, the um, you talking about the possibility of once um, the process that's, uh, that you are going to work on the constitution development and maybe also within 18 months going to elections. Um, is this like one of the issues or, or the challenges that we had in Yemen is that that failed. Once you talk about constitution, once you talk about ele elections, there is going to be a winner and loser and that usually heightens uh, the stakes are going to be really high. Is this a, a concern and how are you planning to deal with that concern Okay, especially because of the really fragmented situation that I can see here. So, um, 
Thank you very much for um, these questions. First of all, we are dealing quite a bit with Syrians outside Syria. Um, we work primarily from Lebanon and from Turkey. Uh, of course, it's not enough. Other groups are doing other work as well, uh, but um, uh, we are very much keen on bringing in all Syrians. So uh, we work, the, the, the most important thing is that we try to link people from outside and inside because already there's a culture uh, fragmentation and divide that's taking place between people outside and people inside, even within the same camp. So opposition, for instance, inside uh, claims that the opposition outside is out of touch with reality. A regime uh, loyalists think that uh, loyalists outside are not suffering and are not uh, paying their dues uh, for, um, so uh, in a sense, there's already a, a big divide between inside and outside, uh, not only between regime and opposition uh, on some level. Um, on the other hand, um, the issue of uh, uh, the diaspora is um, very relevant because the diaspora is very often um, uh, settled and is no longer suffering as much as the people inside. So the diaspora is edging the narratives of conflict. And if we notice the peer pressure that is now being exercised on the opposition uh, 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 delegation, it's primarily coming from groups that are living in Turkey or in Lebanon or in Jordan or in Europe that are no longer uh, afraid of the regime. Uh, and in a sense, uh, they are more at liberty to, uh, or they have the luxury of being uh, uh, sort of unwilling to negotiate. Whereas the uh, opposition inside the country is a little bit more realistic about their prospects. Uh, we have a very uh, uh, dire situation inside the country where the regime is stronger in certain areas, the opposition is stronger in other areas. It's an unsymmetrical uh, power uh, thing that is more or less easing out into a sort of a territorial divide. Uh, the sort of, uh, after five years of conflict, more or less the demarcation lines are settling in. And in many ways, um, there's a, a settling in of the realities on the ground in both camps. And those realities are not understood by the people living outside. So the people living outside have a completely unrealistic uh, approach and understanding of what is going on inside the country. Uh, with regards to the Constitution, uh, one of the things that we are trying to work with everybody is to postpone the question of the Constitution. Because the constitutional question is very divisive. It's where a lot of the conflict will emerge. So what we're trying to do is figure out what authoritative uh, uh, action can be done now that sort of allows us to sort of postpone constitutional questions till later. We need some um, uh, sort of, um, uh, what do you call them, um, things to say, okay, this issue will be dealt with. It will authorize the process to move forward uh, on uh, things that are more tangible and feasible. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, at the moment, the pressure for a new constitution is so high because of 2254. So most likely, eventually, they're going to settle. Both sides are going to settle eventually, if the pressure continues, for what they call a constitutional declaration. It is some sort of an interim arrangement that will be done either by amending the 2012 
regime issued constitution or by creating some sort of a politically mandated constitutional arrangement that will sort of allow the transitional process to take place until maybe five years down the line you write a final constitution. That's uh, emerging more or less as the more likely scenario. Um, elections at the moment, I mean, the regime is uh, uh, claiming that they're going to uh, make the parliamentary elections on time in April. And in many ways, there's the whole question of why is the regime doing that? Um, uh, to be very frank, there's two interpretations, and I can't really favor one than the other. One is that the regime is stubborn and wants to prove that it can still legitimize itself by reproducing the mechanisms of power that uh, it has always sort of used. So um, traditionally, the regime elections in Syria mean nothing. Um, um, in many ways, uh, the regime uses them only as uh, sort of cyclical uh, uh, time markers to re-legitimize itself. So it could be that, um, and it could be on the other hand that uh, 2254 has indicated very clearly, so we have a Security Council directive, that no elections can take place until a new constitution takes place, which means that if the regime decided to do an election, the international community has a two, uh, Security Council the resolution that says these elections are null and void. So why would the regime embark on an election that would delegitimize its current parliament in favor of a new parliament that would be illegitimate according to 2254? Most likely there is some sort of a political deal uh, in that sense, in the sense that the regime is actually, instead of canceling or dismantling instead of the president uh, um, canceling the parliament or uh, dismantling the parliament uh, because that would not be good in front of its own loyalist forces. So he actually calls for elections that knows that will be de facto canceling and dismantling the parliament. That way, according to the constitution, the president becomes the source of jurisprudence in the country. And in a sense, then the president can issue the constitutional declaration independent of a parliament. Um, two interpretations. We'll see which one actually works out. Uh, hello, Pat McCormick. Yeah, thank you for such a very informative talk. I'm, I'm an alum of HKS. Um, you mentioned the urbanization. And I was just wondering if you um, see that trend continuing or, or those numbers staying similar, even if the peace process continues. I'm, I'm assuming it's partly due to um, proportional uh, displacement. And uh, whether you see negative or, or positive consequences in terms of local governance given that shift in the in the population around the country uh, we haven't seen anywhere in the world um, uh, urbanization being reversed um, particularly in post-conflict situations I mean I've done the mapping in Lebanon uh, I teach at uh, the American University in Beirut so I've worked with my students over the last four years to map urban growth patterns after the war in Lebanon and in many ways, uh, there's some centralities that are created, particularly because of the lack of available um, uh, services and infrastructure, and also because a lot of the investment goes to the healthier uh, parts of the country uh, and the, the more stable parts of the country. So eventually what you're going to see is some bigger metropolitan areas eating the rural areas around them. 
uh, in key areas of the of the country and the urban the what used to be uh, rural areas or hinterlands will either be transformed into uh, suburbs uh, of the big cities directly or will become a new centralities in their own right and will start growing and mushrooming in their own right. So uh, there's going to be sort of smaller towns that will eventually grow to become bigger towns uh, as a consequence of the deal. The rural areas, uh, unfortunately, um, are going to not receive sufficient attention. They're not going to be safe uh, and stable for a while. Uh, they're going to be more or less still uh, controlled by disbanded armed groups for some years to come. So we're not likely to see a stability emerging in the rural areas sufficiently for people to go back. Um, I was wondering how uh, the operations ISIS is doing outside Syria. Uh, in Brussels and Turkey are affecting the process? Um, I mean, one would assume that um, there was a, a major shift in tone in, uh, in Europe uh, after the Paris attacks. And in a sense, uh, Europe was sort of convinced once and for all that uh, they can no longer um, uh, abandon uh, the Syria problems to its own uh, sort of tempo. Um, however, I think we are underestimating what the Russians are thinking about all of this. Because the Russians have gone through their battle with the Islamists in, in the 90s. And they have um, uh, sort of their own fears uh, because a very substantive part of the Russian Federation is of Muslim stock and they're afraid of increased radicalization as well. So in a sense, probably uh, this is an area where the true sort of interest between West, the West and uh, Moscow uh, happened to coincide. On the other hand, uh, the way the Russians would probably deal with the issue is completely different than the way the Europeans and the Americans would deal with the issue. The Europeans are um, insisting on a model that would bring democracy. Uh, uh, to Syria as a solution for the process. The Russians, on the other hand, are more interested in local legitimacy. So the Russians, as they have done with Grozny afterwards, they have um, eventually struck a deal with the more moderate Islamists in Grozny and created uh, a framework whereby they worked with the Islamists. Um, and sort of try to create containment fields uh, using uh, Sufi groups and uh, a traditional uh, religious leaders and things like that. So again, uh, these are two clashes of visions that will have to be resolved eventually. The Russians will push for a model that they have tried and tested and know that works. The Europeans will push more on uh, ideological grounds than on uh, tested models. What's the American model, if there is one? I think the, the role of the United States in the process has been the least understood so far. Uh, and I don't think any one of us uh, can really uh, pinpoint to one uh, consistent US policy on, on Syria. Um, I'm no expert on internal uh, US uh, uh, politics and I cannot claim to understand it very well but from the outside if one is looking for it 
Um, this is not an area that the Americans feel particularly very important to them. And uh, they would be more than happy that somebody else take care of it. And what they have done is they have actually outsourced the whole Syria problems to their uh, regional uh, allies, uh, consistently with the notion that the United States does not want to remain the police uh, chief of the world. Uh, and in many ways, um, this has created uh, a bit of a havoc uh, in the, on the ground because the regional allies have different visions on how they're going to manage the crisis. And so eventually the, the American government, I think, um, managed to sort of also understand that the Russians are serious about Syria. Um, and in a sense, uh, they're not going to let go. And uh, some sort of a deal was brokered with the understanding that this will always remain a vital Russian um, uh, area of interest, a geostrategic interest. Now, there's uh, particularly important things that have to be taken into consideration with regards to the gas access and uh, uh, the gas networks and the distribution of, uh, uh, of uh, the sort of geostrategic interest in the region. I think as long as the Russians more or less deliver on those, the Americans have very little interest in the um, intricacies of uh, what goes on on the ground in Syria. Unfortunately, that's the, the, the outlook uh, that we see in Syria. Do we have a two-finger on uh, foreign interests in the conflict? There's a lot of two fingers, yeah? yeah. Uh, foreign interests, how do you view the role of Iran in Syria? And sorry, I'm Merav Khosandi. I'm a mid-career student here at the Kennedy. Uh, we need to look at Iran, not as Iran, but we need to look at a triangle that involves Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Um, these are three countries, uh, the three biggest countries uh, at the moment in the region. Uh, Iran, uh, because of the sanctions, um, had its uh, sort of economic uh, uh, dominance in the region uh, quite threatened for a while. It's a, an economy of about uh, 480, 500 uh, billion dollars uh, GDP. Turkey is an economy of about uh, 750 billion uh, dollars GDP, and Saudi Arabia is likewise about 750 dollars GDP. But they have completely different structures for their economy. Um, uh, Iran and Turkey are both industrial. Uh, uh, potentials and they have quite a bit of uh, uh, diversified economies. Saudi Arabia is dependent on primarily on oil uh, to generate its uh, wealth and as we all know within 25 years Saudi Arabia is moving in a way to become a, a net importer of energy rather than a net uh, currently exporter, a major exporter of energy. So uh, Saudi Arabia has a very limited time span uh, to uh, come on par with Iran and Turkey. And it's quite uh, literally feeling threatened uh, geopolitically uh, as a result of the, so the time is not running in its own favor. So that's why, in a sense, the Saudis are very uh, tense about a potential rapprochement between um, uh, Iran and the international community, because uh, that sort of also narrows down the window uh, through which they can actually work on transforming their economy. The Turks, on the other hand, have already managed the process uh, from the very beginning. And uh, we need to look at what's going on on many levels. Um, 
Iran and Turkey uh, have approximately $25 billion every year of net trade between them. Russia and Turkey have approximately $35 billion of trade in between them. And Erdogan's previous policies were sort of uh, planning on expanding these figures two or threefolds over the next 10 years. That was the, the planning. So if we consider that the net uh, GDP of Syria at the moment is $22, $23 billion, that means the trade between Iran and Turkey is more than the net worth of Syria at the moment. Uh, to that extent, I think uh, the Iranian interests in the beginning were um, for some, uh, let's say, uh, ensuring territorial dominance in Syria. But then when they discovered that this may risk and jeopardize things uh, with, the Turkey, uh, with the Turkish plans for expansion and stuff, particularly that Iran is very much thinking over the long run to export its gas through Turkey, and they need the Turks uh, for that geostrategic uh, uh, the Turks and the Iranians were coming to terms basically in the beginning of 2015. Uh, more or less, sort of, uh, if we look at the the way uh, the regime lost certain concrete areas but gained some other concrete areas, um, the Turks and the Iranians were more or less de facto dividing the country in between them. Something that did not suit the Saudis at all. Uh, the Saudis um, uh, had their both nemesis uh, countries sort of now dividing Syria. Um, we should not for a second imagine that because Turkey and Saudi Arabia have the regime change in, in mind that they're allies. Uh, the uh, Islamist model of Turkey is a real existential threat for the Saudis. And to a certain extent, uh, seeing that Syria was being divided between uh, its arch enemy Iran on the one hand and Turkey, which is its uh, sort of um, alternative or uh, viable alternative uh, uh, challenger to the leadership of the Sunni world um, uh, made the Saudis uh, reflect a little bit back and that's probably where we saw the Saudi-Russian rapprochement uh, come about uh, as a way to sort of um, uh, counterbalance the Turkish-Iranian uh, agreement. So even though on the ground the Turks and the Iranians are supporting diversive uh, uh, political interests, uh, at the end of the day, their bigger interests were actually converging rather than diverging. Hi, um, my name is Maithani. Um, I'm a student at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Um, so in, after and during the uh, Lebanese Civil War, there was uh, a lot of conversation around the lost generation. And as you pointed out, a similar sort of dialogue and fear is uh, surrounding the uh, Syrian um, lost generation youth. And I was wondering, as a Lebanese organization, how has um, this uh, history in terms of maybe perhaps lessons learned or your ex uh, experience as a country with your own civil war shaped some of the policy initiatives or um, proposals um, and how you think? Okay, first of all, I'm not Lebanese. The organization, oh, the organization. I work for is Lebanese. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, the, Actually, the, the Common Space Initiative was initially established uh, to facilitate the Lebanese national dialogue. Uh, and the whole idea was sort of to start finding some ways around the sectarian divide in the country and the political divide in the country uh, to create um, some other ways to discuss some of the country's problems. So they discussed, for instance, in addition to the national political uh, problem, 
They discuss, for instance, the role of uh, um, what they call the, the Council for uh, Social and Economic Development in Lebanon, uh, the relationship between the uh, Palestinian immigrant communities and uh, or refugee communities inside Lebanon and the Lebanese uh, state. Um, uh, more recently, they are talking about uh, policies, uh, the Lebanese policies to accommodate the Syrian refugees. So uh, a lot of the uh, work that uh, our NGO is actually engaged in is sort of uh, looking at these alternative uh, possibilities of uh, negotiating national problems. Uh, and the way they do it is by actually engaging the political stakeholders themselves in the thinking. Uh, so bringing the, po the different political parties to sit at the same table uh, and to negotiate some of these issues. Uh, on that level, um, the NGO itself is uh, uh, not particularly uh, concerned with like what we're doing on the Syria uh, thing, because on the Syria things, we don't yet have uh, viable national stakeholders. So we're doing a lot of track three uh, work in Syria. Whereas in the Lebanon uh, thing, the NGO is doing more track one and a half uh, type work. Uh, so uh, eventually I think um, uh, some of that work will diffuse down to other places. Uh, but at the moment, this is uh, how things are. Hi, my name is Lisa and I'm a first year public policy student at the Kennedy School. I was wondering if you could say more about your work with women in with local women and how that's playing out. Um, there's different uh, involvement of women in the in the process that take place. Some of it is on a sort of civil society level, uh, and some of it is within the political parties themselves, and some of it is. Uh, through the uh, Women's Advisory Board that Mr. Demistura has set up um, to sort of accompany the process itself. And we work on all three levels. Um, I was just in Geneva facilitating the meetings of the Women's Advisory Board, but we also support a lot of um, uh, track three type dialogues on a civil society level exclusively for women's groups. Um, but also, more importantly, what we try to do is ensure that women are involved throughout the process. Uh, so whenever we have the political meetings and other uh, civil society meetings, we ensure that um, a very high representation and active participation of women is involved. So uh, it's not an exclusive track uh, by itself as much as a cross-cutting issue that we try to uh, bring it about at every level. Um, but in some cases, there has been particularly, um, uh, like in the Women's Advisory Board, a political sphere where women can be active uh, as women and not just as civil society actors. And this is, uh, again, very important when it emerges because it's a sphere that actually is born out of uh, work from the bottom up. Uh, and that's what's uh, our interest in supporting it. So there was a... a map earlier that you showed, which is basically indicated that Syria is being divided into three or four different sectors with al-Nusra and uh, <coughs> the Kurds and ISIS and the regime. <laughs> it almost seems like using the word regime is kind of a moot point at this stage of the game because they seem to have, you know, like a a definitive territorial sector. 
and the others have sectors too. But the problem with the other sectors, especially ISIS, is that you know they attack Europe, and the Europeans don't like that. They actually have to do something about it. And yet ISIS there has a has a geopolitical position, which is going to be really hard to dislodge. <coughs> so uh, it just seems to me that Belgium can sit there and say, <coughs> well, this is awful, but we really can't do anything about it because ISIS is hanging out there and they got a really strong position. But the other position is that ISIS cannot have a strong position. <coughs> so what about the argument of, of you know, wiping out ISIS, even though they claim to be a political entity? Maybe they shouldn't be a political entity. I'm going to I'm going to chip in on the on the ISIS topic but because I found that interesting as well. Is there anybody and that might be a very naive question for you. Is there anybody within the negotiations suggesting to talk to ISIS rather than waiting to have it militarily defeated? Um ISIS uh, is again a very uh, not well understood entity. Uh, because they themselves sort of uh, put various smoke screens uh, uh, in front of them. Uh, ISIS is uh, providing services in a part of the country that had very little services before. And in many ways, they're providing similar, if not better, services than what the government was uh, providing before. If we did a very rough calculation about what ISIS is uh, spending in its own territory, uh, and we include in that some of what we know about its, their fixed costs uh, involved, um, and then compare that with their revenue streams that we know of, basically oil, uh, antiquity sales, uh, various local taxes that they're imposing, and we put these things together, we discovered that at the end of the day, ISIS is uh, uh, making locally only a third at best of what it spends on the area. There is somebody from outside of Syria funding ISIS to the extent of about $80 million a month. Now, we can talk about as much as we want about ISIS's uh, ideology, ISIS's uh, 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 political, ISIS whatever. But there's a whole industry generating revenues and channeling uh, resources to ISIS from outside of Syria. Some of the resources are coming from Iraq because Iraq has a, a bigger ISIS constituency, but still not enough. The initial funds that they have taken from the Mosul Bank supposedly, if there had been any uh, in the first place, <coughs> have by now run out. The question with ISIS is not a question of local Syrian problem. The question of ISIS is sort of what is the network from the external and international network of ISIS that is funding and fueling it. ISIS, I very often sort of uh, make the analogy as if you have a little lion 
and uh, you want to threaten your neighbor, so you throw a piece of meat in the direction of your enemy, and the lion goes to the other side and eats that piece of meat and grows a bit more. And then your enemy, to avoid uh, being attacked by that lion, will throw the piece of meat to the other side, and then that side to this side, and this side to this side. And everybody's throwing a piece of meat to sort of point the, uh, the, uh, this sort of lion in the other direction. And eventually the lion becomes a huge animal that nobody can beat. Um, unfortunately, everybody has benefited from ISIS. The government the regime has benefited from ISIS because ISIS was attacking the rebel opposition uh, groups. Uh, the uh, Turks have benefited from ISIS because uh, uh, in some ways um, uh, ISIS was uh, fighting the Kurds. Um, the Saudis benefited from ISIS because it actually managed to sort of uh, move some of its own jihadis uh, outside and sort of export its internal problems uh, outside. Um, Israel benefited from ISIS because what better uh, propaganda against Islam you want to have across the world. Everybody has one way or another benefited from ISIS. Uh, and to a certain extent, they have also supported it, directly or indirectly. Um, the issue of controlling ISIS, I think, is not a military issue. Because if the West decided that they want to actually move in with the Russians, it probably will um, take them no more than two weeks or three weeks to conquer a whole territory. But we have already seen what happens in Iraq when you conquer a whole territory and have no ways to govern it afterwards. Uh, the issue is how do you contain the spillover of ISIS? ISIS and al-Nusra are the fourth generation of, um, of the jihadist transformations and mutations. The big question is if you conquer them militarily, what's going to happen afterwards? How are they going to mutate? What is their next mutation? At the moment, they're in Syria with a few flares out push them out a little bit longer, uh, where will they go? How will they transform? How will they mutate? They have the knowledge. They have the organization capacity. They have the internet savviness. Um, and they can very much recreate themselves anywhere else in the world. Or they have proven that they can do that. In 2013, I was in Belgium. I was uh, speaking at the European Parliament and urging the European Parliament at the time that if you don't take uh, care of uh, finding a solution for the Syrian crisis, that solution is going to uh, eventually, that crisis is going to come and bite you. It's going to come and bite you from a humanitarian point of view because what is costing you now pennies to take care of is going to cost you billions with refugees and uh, uh, humanitarian aid and uh, death and whatever, and from a security point of view. I was invited afterwards by the Belgian government uh, foreign ministry to give a small talk internally inside the foreign ministry. And uh, I gave the, the same presentation to them and so showed them by numbers and by figures where uh, the, the crisis was unfolding and how it's you know, modeling it, where it's going to go within two or three years. Uh, a lot of my predictions are more unfortunately coming true. And I raised at the issue, at the end of the day, the issue of uh, the danger of uh, their own sort of uh, citizens going in and engaging in this. And I said, no, 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 it's not a problem. It's a minor security issue. We can take care of it. Unfortunately, uh, that kind of a mindset is what is breeding 
problems nowadays. We are almost there. I can maybe take one last question. Please be very quick. Um, and Hi, my name is Sasha. I'm from the Divinity School. I was wondering if you're engaging with religious leaders in the peace building process, and if so, what the what that looks like. Um, not directly. Um, again, um, uh, indirectly, there has been many platforms that engaged uh, religious leaders, and we work with these platforms, um, particularly the issue of representing Syria as a religious conflict is not a very accurate one. Um, though on some levels it has transformed itself into sectarian uh, uh, narratives, the conflict is still by far not very sectarian in nature. Now it helps of course to bring the religious leader on board to sort of um, find common grounds. And a lot of other groups are doing that kind of work. And they're more specialized uh, in the process. Uh, so we're not directly involved in uh, creating the track three and track two type uh, discussions with religious leaders, because that's a space that, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to. So uh, for ourselves, we don't want to replicate other people's work. We're trying to focus on areas where other people are not very much involved. I want to thank you again, Mr. Halaj, for joining us here today in the Ash Center. It was, I think, a really fascinating discussion. I learned a lot. Um, and I also want to thank you for coming, of course, and again also um, for Medina for making this happen and uh, for bringing us together here today. Um, thanks very much, and have a safe trip back home.